be in the Bibles under the seats. If you're in one of those, we'll be on page 804. But we'll be in Matthew 24, and we're going to do part one today and part two next week. Quite the controversial chapter this can be, talking about end times and prophecy. And there's about a million different takes on some of these things. And it's really, I just, you know, it's one of the more intimidating chapters in Matthew to talk about. It reminds me of preaching through Revelation. That was terrifying. I don't know how you felt about it, but <laughs> every Sunday I was up here quaking in my boots. But um, just a privilege, too, at the same time, to share the words of Jesus. And if nothing else, you'll hear the words of Jesus, and you know what? That's enough. So, um, But we will start in verse 1. Actually, I will read two, a few verses right before it to kind of lead in and remind us where we came from last week. But before we do that, to kind of help set the context, I want to... Um, kind of play a game of imagine this. I want you to imagine that, um, that I came up and the first things I said to you were, I had, a, I had a dream last night, a vision that God said to me that in the near future, the next 12 months, that the United States of America, as you know it, will no longer be. That the Capitol and the White House and the Supreme Court will all be leveled. That the 50 states will be dissolved and we will cease to be an independent nation. Now, if I said that and meant it, and I'm, again, just hypothetical, the feeling that would come if you believed that, and that would have a lot to do with how much credibility I had in your eyes, would be, that would, that would get your attention, right? Um, and yet, that's what happens in this passage when Jesus starts talking to his disciples about what's about to happen. He's going to be talking about the near future, not just about his second coming. He's going to be talking about the near future, and he's essentially going to say, it's all going to be leveled. Your home, your nation, your people. And it's from that place that he then unrolls these two prophecies one in the short term, and one they don't know at the time is not in the short term, one in the long term, the one that we're still waiting on today. So one of these prophecies is now history. It's been fulfilled, which is pretty cool when you can read a, about a prophecy and actually see that it was fulfilled, and you're like, oh, I can read that in the history books. That's like, that really happened. And then you start to see the specificity in which Jesus prophesied it, and you realize, oh, he knows stuff. Oh, he's authoritative. And then you start to realize, oh, and there have been so many other prophecies that have been made about him and by him. We should take his word seriously, which is probably a good takeaway all by itself. So with that, let's start reading. So I'm going to start in verse 37. Sorry in the booth, I didn't give you a heads up on this. This is from last week. Jesus is finishing up a long passage where he has been really expressing righteous anger towards the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And then he turns and, and we hear his anguish, starting in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing." They were not willing to gather. They were not willing to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Look, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this will be the last time he's in the temple. Of course, we're just days away from the cross, so that's really not hard to believe. But the verse right before 38, look, your house is left to you desolate, is the first of many words he's going to share about this prophecy about what's going to happen to my, to my country, to my nation, to my city, Jerusalem. The house is referring to the house of the Lord, which is the temple. I don't know if you realize there's only one Jewish temple, and it's always in Jerusalem when it has existed. Right now, there's just a little bit of the wall showing there, a big piece of a little bit of that wall. And he's going to leave it desolate. And then he's going to walk away. God is going to walk away from the temple. God in the flesh and Jesus is going to walk away. And that's where verse, 21, where, where verse 1 in chapter 24 picks right up there. Matthew writes, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings, and specifically the temple buildings, the temple complex. And if you read in the, the parallel account of this in Mark, they say, they point out two things. They say, what a magnificent building this is, and they point out how massive the stones are that are used to build this temple. I want you to imagine that um, this wall was pulled away and a tractor-trailer truck pulled in, and maybe one of those that, you know, the shipping containers we see up and down I-26 that are coming from the Port of Charleston, those shipping containers are usually either 20 feet long or 40 feet long. Okay, so let's imagine the 40-foot long one, and they're 12, 10 to 12 feet tall and 8 to 10 feet wide. So imagine they're 12 feet by 12 feet by 40. That's about the size of one rock that they used to, put this, to build this temple. That's why it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, as far as the man-made wonders of the ancient world. A 40-foot block was like one brick. And that was how they built. And so when the, when the disciples are looking at the temple and Jesus is walking away, they've just heard him say, they've just heard him say what I just read to you, your house is left to you desolate. He's talking to the religious leaders when he says that. But they're like, oh, that hurt. That's, our, that's, that's God's house. That's like the presence of God in the midst of his people. What are you saying as he walks away? They just, their hearts are heavy and they're like, it's almost like they want to go, cheer up Jesus, it's a pretty awesome structure. <laughs> Look at the architecture, there's gold on the outside. They use gold on the roof because it's such a precious building. Look at the white marble, it's so bright and white that it's blinding in the sun. This 90 foot tall structure that's massive structure that's just the heart of this temple complex. This is so amazing and impressive. And Jesus' response is sobering. Verse 2, do you see all these things? Referring to what they're referring to, he asked. Truly I tell you, which basically means write this down. <laughs> Not one stone here will be left on one another. Every one will be thrown down. So let me give you a little history, more context. So the year here is roughly... A.D. 30, okay, not A.D. 30, not 1830, A.D. letters 30, okay? About between A.D. 60 and 70, so 30 to 40 years in the future, some things go down in the temple that the Jews consider blasphemous, okay? And these things will provoke the Jews to want to revolt against Rome, and they will. 
And that will spark Rome to do what Rome would do. Whenever there's a rev- threat of a revolution, they up the troops and they storm the, they storm the place and they take care of anybody who even smells like a traitor. And that happened around 66. They come in and they start marching towards the city with their army and anybody in the way. And they get to the temple complex around 70. And they begin to siege Jerusalem. Okay, Now Jerusalem is a massive city on top of a plateau. On three sides, it's, there's these, it goes way down. There's a valley on each side. It, I kind of picture it, if you look at Jerusalem from the air, kind of like the Charleston Peninsula. It juts out into Charleston Harbor, and you have the Ashley River coming in on one side and the Cooper River coming on another side. Now, I want you to imagine that there's no water in any of that. So the city would be up high, although here it wouldn't be up very high. There, it was hundreds of feet up. Plus, the walls, which go right to the edge of the plateau, are 150 feet tall, 15-story walls. So this is a city that is hard to get into, much less take. But Rome is the master war machine, And so they pull up, and they pitch their tents, and they're like, we're going to be here a while. And they siege the city for six months. That's how long it takes for the food to run out and the people to start eating their own children in the city of Jerusalem. And eventually, the city is attacked and destroyed. And a million Jews die, and 100,000 are taken as slaves. Now, interestingly, as that 66 to 70 period time period is happening, about 68, King uh, Caesar Nero, the one that's kind of nutso, actually was crazy, he kills himself. And so then there's this, um, there's this battle for who's going to be the next Caesar. There's two that are trying to compete to become the next emperor of, of Rome. And I think it's Vespian that wins. And his son Titus, or Titius, can't remember how you say his name, he's the general of the army that's going towards Jerusalem, even as that happens. So the orders from Rome to Titus is destroy the city, but don't destroy the temple. That's the original plan. They go into the city, and the soldiers have been waiting for six months Right? They're like, we want to get out of here, we want to get back home, we are tired, we want to kill all these terrible people and just be done. So they're in and they're pillaging and burning everything, including some who get inside the temple. Apparently they didn't hear the order and they set fire and the temple starts burning on the inside and it torches the inside. Well, the inside is the walls are coated and painted in gold. Not gold paint, gold So with the heat from the fire, the gold liquefies and runs down the walls and into the cracks between the rocks, those giant 40-foot stones. Because I always thought when I heard that there was no stones going to be left, I'm like, is that exaggeration? Why would they go to the trouble to move those massive stones? Because there'd be gold in there. And so they did. And so they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city, there was no one allowed. There's no one who's going to live there anymore. It was just totally raised and destroyed. This is what Jesus is foretelling. Now, he doesn't know when it's going to happen. He just knows it's going to happen in the near future. He probably knows a lot more than he lets on. But he's giving them a heads up for a reason. Now, I went online to see 
um, a, what question, I like to see what questions people are asking about whatever it is I'm preaching on. So I typed in second coming of Christ and return of Christ into a, a, a website called answerthepublic.com, answerthepublic.com. Don't go there now, but check it out. It's pretty cool. Put a subject into the line, into the little box, and then hit enter, and it'll spit out all the questions that people are asking about that subject. But what, what it really tells you is how many of each question are people asking? What questions are they really asking? Well, you want to know what the number one question about the second coming of Christ is? When? Right? Same question you have. Same question I have. Same question the disciples ask in verse 3. As Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, isn't it interesting that they jumped to when is the end of the age going to come? That tells you something about the condition of the temple, how massive it was to them. It was so unthinkable that the temple could be destroyed. This was a, you know, this rock structure that took 46 years to build. They think the only way it's going down is, a, is God is going to have to take it down. The end time, it's just the end of the world. And Jesus doesn't really do anything to dispel that. He kind of leaves it. And so that's why they make the jump to that. They make the leap there. So, so, uh, so we see in verse 1, Jesus is leaving the temple. And if you don't know the geography of Jerusalem, um, so you have the city, the peninsula. So let's go kind of like this, okay? And, and on the east side, on the east edge of the city is the temple. And it's the highest place on the, t- on the peninsula, so it's the highest elevation. And then you have, wrapped around it, you have these valleys. So he, so he left the temple, went out of the city, the outside wall, east wall of the temple is also the east wall of the city in part. They go down the Kindron Valley and come back up the Mount of Olives, which is over here, okay? And it's called the Mount of Olives because there are lots of olive trees, and olive oil is a big deal in those days as far as um, people, everybody needed it, okay? Every Walmart had it. All right, so uh, they tell us when is this going to happen and what will be the sign, and and this is what people ask today. We want to know when he's coming back. Well, let me just answer that question because... 99% 99% of the questions answered online, that's the answer, to the, that's the question they're asking. So online, let me tell you, okay, people who are online listening right now, let me tell you the answer to the question. It's in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, Jesus referring to himself, but only the Father. So when you see the Father, you can ask him and he will tell you, but by then you will know and you won't need any help. So you got the answer to that question, okay? Now, here's the question you should be asking. How do I prepare for his return? Because he's coming back, okay? Now, you may not believe that. There's people that don't believe, a lot of people don't believe that. Most people don't believe that. A lot of Christians don't believe that, okay? But he's, he's going to tell us a little bit here this week, and next week he's going to make it very clear, I'm coming back. Are you ready? And if you're not ready, how do I get ready? Or if you think you're ready, how do I make sure I'm ready? What are the things I need to be doing? So Jesus is going to use some imagery here. I keep putting this down because I talk with my hands. He's going to use some imagery here, and he's going to call these things that he's going to call these things birth pains. And I've talked about this before, so but I'll, I'll go back through, even though it'll make me extremely uncomfortable. Pregnancy is a nine month thing. I hear, okay, and it's very uncomfortable for mama all the way through. But it, it, the thing about it is, it gets worse or harder as you go through. The pain gets more and more intense as you get closer to delivery day, and the 
the, the, in, the pains, the contractions, they happen closer and closer together as you get closer and closer to the delivery. Take that and apply that to the birth pains that Jesus is going to call the things that are happening in our world to us and around us as we head towards the fulfillment of not one but two prophecies. Okay? Now let's talk about the prophecies, and then we'll jump back in. Okay, so the first prophecy is what he's going to describe as what's going to be the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, okay? The one in A.D. 70, okay? Let's call that the first mountain. Just let a mountain represent that prophecy. The second prophecy is that Jesus is going to come back. So that's the second mountain. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before or not, but when you look at a mountain range from a distance... It looks like a wall, if it's a mountain range, like a, and you can see the whole range. Um, like if you're out west and you look at the Rockies from a distance, or if you're down in Mexico and you see the Sierra Madres. When I was in Kazakhstan, I saw that wall of the Tian Shin mountain range. It just looks like a wall. And they all look like they're just one after another, one after another. But when you get up close to a mountain range, you realize those mountains aren't on top of each other. There's space between them, a good bit of space. And so your perspective helps you see what's really there. The way Jesus describes these two prophecies, it looks like they're right on top of each other. But when you get into the prophecy and you get closer, you realize this mountain is way back here. And there's over 2,000 years between these two because we're still waiting. We're still waiting for his imminent return. It's been imminent for 2,000 years. And we're still waiting. Okay? So... With all that, let me jump through. Now we're just going to work through the passage, and I'm going to show you how he's going to describe. This is how he's going to teach us how to prepare. He's going to give us imperatives, 12 of them. Now, an imperative is just another way of saying a command, a strong word of, you need to do this. Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christ followers. Okay? Remember, this is on the other side of the cross. He hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't rose from the dead yet. But these are people who want to follow Jesus. They're listening to his teaching. They've seen his miracles and his signs. They believe he is, he is the son of God. They believe he's at different degrees to the best of their ability based on what they know. Okay? So they're missing a lot of information still, but that's where they are. With that in mind, he starts talking and he doesn't stop. Jesus answered, verse 4, and I'm going to call out each imperative and you'll, you'll see it. It's kind of like a command. The very first one, verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, that's in the name of Jesus, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. So why would he have to, why is he warning them? Because they're going to be tempted to be deceived when somebody says, I'm the Messiah, I've come back. Now you can go, well, it doesn't make sense. It's not way out there like the second prophecy. Remember, they don't realize that yet. They think he could come back as soon as he, and they don't even know, he hasn't even gone yet, so they don't even understand. What do you mean, come back? I'm not even sure I, I so when that comes clear after the cross and the, after the cross and the resurrection, they're going to realize, oh, he's coming back. Oh, he's alive, and he, we see him ascend into the heavens, right? Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the Father. And the angels say, um, he's going to come back just like he left. He's gonna, you're going to see him in the clouds. Go, go, get busy. You've got a job to do. Church age begins, okay? And that happens around 30 A.D., 31 A.D., okay? All right, so, then, so he says the first thing, we're going to be tempted to be deceived that somebody who says they're a Messiah or they're Jesus, we're going to be tempted to believe they are, okay? 
People who followed Jim Jones in the 70s, people who followed David Koresh, whenever that was, 90s, something, you know. There are people that are claiming to be Jesus even today. And Jesus is saying, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Okay? But see to it that you are not alarmed. Don't be surprised by that. Now, remember, he's talking to them about the next 40 years. But he's also talking to all of us after that happens for the next prophecy. All of this is double. So, I mean, right? Just turn on the news and you're going to hear about another war. And it's not a surprise to us. We shouldn't. It's, I think it's easier for me not to be alarmed about these because I've never witnessed a war in my state. I've never witnessed a war really in my country. I mean, we had 9-11, and that was terrifying. But that was just a different kind of war. It's not really fought here. They had to worry about people invading their city. That was like a real possibility. Like they talked about the last time it was invaded. Then he continues, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So what is he saying? He's saying these aren't signs, these are birth pains, and there's a difference. Okay? There's going to be signs that are going to look different. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes and various places. And all these are the beginning of birth pains, not the same as signs. Okay, verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Now he's focusing on um, what's happening in the church in these next 40 years because he knows the church will be brand new, the church will be small, the church will be vulnerable because they were just trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus when he's not around? How do we do that? What is this? How do we trust God through the spirit of the Holy, Holy Spirit? How do we do that? You'll be handed over, be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me, Jesus says. This is the book of Acts. In a, in, a, in a verse, this is the book of Acts. Okay? Verse 10, at, the same, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. That's Christians betraying and hating each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And you can go into history and you can read about the many people who claim to be Jesus in these 40 years. This is actually happened. Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But then we get a little bit of encouragement. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is a promise to keep. This is a promise to believe. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You want to know if you're the real deal? Keep standing. By the grace of God, by grace through faith, we, we will persevere, no matter how hard or how bad it gets. But we don't always know ahead of time. I think that's, that's part of the journey, right, is not knowing, even though I know I should know, and even though I should be certain and confident, sometimes I doubt. It's the human condition to doubt, okay? That doesn't mean it's a good thing, but it also doesn't mean God can't use it to strengthen you. So if you're doubting, don't beat yourself up. Press into that doubt and test it and go to the Word and ask yourself, can I believe that God is trustworthy? Can I really trust Him? Can I really rely on Him? Look at the promises He's made that He's kept. Look at the prophecies that have been shared that have come to pass. Ask yourself, can I trust God? And then He gives us this, another prophecy. This is not related to these two directly. Verse 14, 
But this is a challenge to the church, a call, if you will. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I'm going to read it again. And this gospel of the kingdom, that's good news that the kingdom of God is near, but not yet fully here. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I think this has already been fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled. I think it's been fulfilled in that, that time, that, that 40 years, the known Roman Empire knew about Christ. And to them, that was their world. But I think that the task that's still ahead of us is the whole globe, the four corners of the world, if you will. That's our mission. You want Jesus to come home quicker? Help finish the task of taking the gospel to all the nations. Okay? And there's a lot of people groups out there that don't have a Bible in their own language, that don't have a church in their ethnicity, and don't have a believer to show them the way yet. Unreached people groups, they're called. And we need to send people, and we need to go to the nations. This is why our series is called All. Jesus has all authority so that all nations might pledge all allegiance to him. Are we in that? Verse 15. So when you see, now we're starting to move into, here's what's, he's getting more explicit about A.D. 70. So when we see standing in the holy place, so in the very, very center of the temple, there, were, there was one room with a divider and that big curtain, that 60-foot high curtain or 90-foot high curtain, depending on the temple. You had the holy place and then you had the most holy place, okay? In that area, so in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, that's a quote from Daniel, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, before I get into that, verse 16, basically what's going to happen, and this is already, had already happened a couple of times, and it probably ultimately here is talking about when Rome desecrates the temple by showing up, burning it, and destroying it. He's saying when that happens, you need to leave. But that abomination is just someone blaspheming the temple, which represents the presence of God in the midst of his people. Now, he'd gone, right? Jesus said, it's left desolate, and Jesus walked away, and, and there's no spirit of the living God there anymore. Anyway, I don't know how far back they could go before that was true. Probably a while. But nevertheless, Jesus makes it very clear. But what's he going to do? He's going to do the opposite of what the Jews would have done under any other circumstance, any other circumstance, if, uh, if uh, an army's coming, what would they say? What would everybody know to do? If you're in the outs outskirts of the city, you'd go to the city to get inside the walls. Protection and another sword that you can lift to help defend the city. Jesus tells the Christians, run. Why? Because he knows it's going to be destroyed. He is judging his chosen people, Israel, who he's going to bring out, not only a remnant of those, but the Christians, the church, will, be, will come out of that. Listen to how he says it. Verse, uh, we get some more imperatives here. Verse uh, 16 says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is how you know it's local. He talks about Judea specifically, and there are mountains there. And there are caves in the mountains. This is where you could go and hide. 
Let no one on the housetop go down to take... Okay, let those who are in Judea flee. Flee is the next imperative. Then verse 17, let no one... This is the next imperative. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. The next imperative, let no one on the field go back to get their cloak. What's he saying? They had flat roofs, and they used their roofs as a patio. I don't know. I mean, they had a little 18-inch wall around the perimeter, and... I don't know, their, their lawn chairs and their yetis were up there. I don't know. They, they hung out out there to get the cool breeze in the afternoon after a long day in the fields. So whether they were working in the fields or resting and reclining on the roof, they were to get out as soon as they learned that the abomination that, is, that causes desolation has happened or is about to happen. They're to run. They're not to take time to pack a, a go bag. It better be ready. They're not time, they don't have time to grab their jacket. It's just go, flee, because they're going to... Because wrath is coming. Both of these prophecies are God's wrath coming, and he's warning his people what to do in preparation for that. Verse 19, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing moms, for pretty obvious reasons, I would think. Verse 20, another imperative, pray. But he gives specific things to pray. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Well, traveling back then would have been on foot or on donkey, probably on foot. And if you have to get across a river, there's probably not a bridge. And it's cold water most of the time, but in the winter. And if, if it's really cold, you, you don't have time to grab a cloak. You don't have time to grab anything. You just go. And then you, you, if it happens on the Sabbath, they have their laws. You can only travel so much distance before it's considered work. And so there's these things, and he says, pray about these things. Well, they answered, God answered one prayer. Apparently they prayed because it happened in August, and apparently it's warm there in August too. But uh, verse 21, for then there will be a great distress. There will be great distress. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now that's saying something when you're talking about Jerusalem. This destruction is so bad that it's worse than all the wars that have happened in Jerusalem since then. And it means it's even going to be worse than those wars we read about in, in the prophecies that talk about, what is it, um, Gog and Magog and end times wars and the battles. and This, this is the worst of all of them. That's how bad it was. So Jesus is like, don't try to stay and defend the city. Run. 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, that's another description for believers, those days will be shortened. That's God working, God's grace, God's mercy. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, here's another imperative, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time, which is what he's doing here. Verse uh, 27. Now, he's going to make it very clear. You're going to know when Jesus is coming. You're going to know. Here's how you're going to know. Verse 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay? It's going to be obvious when Jesus shows up. Like, you won't have to go, are you sure that was him? And ask somebody, what did he look like? 
Was he like walking on water? You don't have to ask any of those questions. You can just look to the sky and everybody will be able to see him, whether they believe him or not. You won't have to believe in Jesus at that point because you will see him and it will be too late to believe in Jesus at that point. Right? Because we come to him by grace through faith. And if I can see him, I don't need faith. So it's a warning. And then he gives us some some Old Testament scriptures here that talk about some what I would call astronomical events. I should, I should have called up Gene and said, come read this scripture to us, right? It's a little astronomy here. I, I, I'm just going to tell you, I don't know, all right? You're like, what is it? I don't, all right? I, I will say this. There are places, other examples of this in, happening in the Old Testament where you have judgment of God and then astronomical things. And sometimes those astronomical things are figuratively there, and sometimes they happen. Literally. I don't know which this is. I got, I'm reading good guys that are, that are saying both, okay? I, I think that the takeaway here is, are you ready? Are you preparing? Do you know how to prepare? Because he's coming back. So I wouldn't get too hung up on it, but we're going to read it because Jesus is saying it, and that means it's good stuff. Wherever there is a... Oh, this verse is really strange. Okay, verse 28. Wherever there is a carcass... There the vultures will gather. Okay, so if you got a dead body on the side of the road, any kind of body, you're going to have vultures. I think this is probably alluding to who's coming to do the destruction. On the legions, on the legions of Rome's armies, they would carry banners, these poles with banners, and on the top of every one of those poles was an eagle, which is a fancy vulture. Yeah, God bless America. Right? I don't know. And it's probably, I mean, it's not just filler. It's there for a reason. Verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, and then he starts quoting um, Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Daniel. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. I, I have no problem believing that this could literally happen, and I have no problem believing it's figurative. I really don't, I really just don't know. But... I'm okay either way, because God can do it however he wants. The point is, he's trying. these are things that would get your attention. So whatever happens here, it's going to be so clear that these are cosmic mega events that it will get everyone's attention, and we'll know what's going down. At least we'll have some pretty good idea. Verse 30, then, the end, then will appear the sign. Finally, we get a sign. Finally, then we will, will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. That's what he's referring, just referred to. And then all the peoples of the earth, all means all, all right, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in heaven with power and great glory. Why would that be? Why would all the people mourn the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Probably because, as Jesus has said earlier in Matthew, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few will find it. Because most people are going to reject Jesus Christ. So when they see him and they put two and two together, they're going to realize my judgment is here. The judge has just arrived. And I imagine their spirit is going to quake. I imagine you won't have to tell them. I think they're just going to have, you know how you get that in the pit of your stomach, something really bad is about to happen? I think that's going to be on steroids, going to be happening. But I don't know. All right, verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. So if you didn't see it, you're going to hear it. 
all right? And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This kind of makes me think of rapture, but I don't know. Again, it's pretty obscure, and I'm okay with that. Verse 32. Now we get he's going to end up with a little imagery of another fig tree. He loves those fig trees, right? Now learn this lesson. That's the last imperative. Learn I thought I, I thought I missed another imperative. Now learn this lesson. That's the last imperative. From the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near, right? We know that, right? When we start seeing plants start to blossom and little green come out on the tips of the plants, we know spring's here and summer's about to happen. Or, you know, we, we usually think Flower Town Festival's not far away, right? Um, and, then he, and then he says, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So that's telling you, this is imminent. Right at the door tells you, it's time to get ready, okay? It's kind of like we're watching, you know, Live five weather and the, the hurricanes, and you know, people are running out to go surf. It's coming. It's here. The waves are up. Surf's up. Truly, I tell you, and this is the verse that gives everybody heartburn. Truly, I tell you, which Jesus is saying, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So all these things I just read about, Jesus says, these things will happen before that first prophecy. Okay? What he doesn't expand on, at least not yet, is, well, what about the next one? But all these things are going to happen. And then he gives us this word, and I think this is an encouraging word. It depends on how you read it, I suppose. Heaven and earth will pass away. That might not be too encouraging to you. I don't know. Heaven and earth will pass away. doesn't say how. Other places it says the earth will burn up. But Revelation tells us there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? All right? I would assume new and improved, not just new. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, maybe this is the point. My words, do you believe his words? Because that's not comforting unless you do. Well, if you do, it still might not be comforting. It might be terrifying if you believe his words, right? Because if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you believe his words, that means you know you're in the crosshairs still. And I don't want you to be in the crosshairs. So how do we prepare? Well, first you've got to get out of the crosshairs of his judgment. How do I do that? You repent and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's going to do all he promised to do. What? What is that? Okay, so it hasn't happened yet, but he's days away from the cross where Jesus goes and put, is nailed to a Roman cross by the Romans. He's put there because of the Jewish leaders, the Romans. We're all guilty, Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't really matter. We're all represented at the foot of the cross as being guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. Why? Because we're all sinners. And it is our sin that drove him to the cross so that he could show mercy. So God could make it possible for us to be forgiven. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us is good news because it means that I can be forgiven for my sin even though I don't deserve that at all. And neither do you. We don't deserve his forgiveness. We don't deserve his mercy. Yet he made it happen. He made it available, but he didn't make it automatic. Okay? And so, so his words, Jesus' words are, the good news is the kingdom of God is near. Why is that good news? Because he's the king. And the king is God in the flesh. And he created us, and he wants to have a relationship with us. 
That's why he created us, because love gives. Love wants to know and be known. But we rebelled against that, and we live in a rebellious world. That's why it's so wicked. That's why things are so sideways. It's why you feel like everything's broken, and I just want to find hope and healing. And that's a good hunger and a desire. That's right. That's good. That's a desire God gave you so that you might have the, the ability to finally humble yourself and say, I need you, God. I can't do this without you. And so, so Jesus makes it clear. Again, he's warning us. He's warning them, turn to me. I try to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. What does he say? You were not willing. Okay? Well, there's a small number that were willing because we're here because of them. Right? Those who believed they saw Jesus and believed. Blessed are those who don't see him and still believe, right? They said that too. And that's where we are. And that's where most people are that believe. They don't, we don't have the, we weren't there. So we have to decide, is this believable? Okay? And, and I know it's hard. It doesn't mean it's not true. It means you need to think, what do I believe? How do I think this ends? Dig in. Dig deep. Find a conviction that you can stake your life on because this was the one I've staked my life on. All right? And I'm still learning what that means. 40 years ago, it's hard for me to believe. I was realizing this last week. 40 years ago, I surrendered to Christ. I didn't know what I was doing. I already thought I was a Christian. And I surrendered to Christ because I realized in that moment I was not. I couldn't be a Christian just because I was raised in a Christian home. That was not enough. I had to decide myself, am I going to follow Jesus? I had to surrender and humble myself. I had to do that in response to his grace and mercy. And by his grace, I did. And ever since then, as I sought to slowly learn what it means to humble yourself and trust him daily... His grace and mercy have been abundant and made it possible for me to creep forward a little at a time. Okay? I'm right there with you. I promise. Okay? So how do we prepare? In a nutshell, two steps. One is you need to get right with the Lord. You need to repent of your sins. You need to acknowledge, I'm on this road, and this is the road where I think I know what I'm doing, and I'm living life my way. And whether it's going well or not, this is a one-way trip to hell. That's all this is. And when I repent, I'm saying, I'm going to believe you, God, when you say this is a one-way trip to, to hell and eternal death. And I'm going to do an about face. And I want to run as far as I can, from that as I can to a way that is, leads to life. Not just this life, but an abundant life. And, and I don't want to live forever unless it's abundant. By the way, okay, can I, you know? I mean, maybe that's even worth an amen. I, love, I mean, like, if I'm going to live forever, it better be better than this. Right? Okay. So, so, you know, when he says, this is not the way, this is the way, right? Even the Mandalorian's on this trail. He's like, yeah, this is the real way, you know? Santa Claus is, ho, ho, let's go, you know? I... Okay? So that's your first step. Your second step is these imperatives are here for a reason, and you can clump them into three categories. Do I believe Jesus' words enough to trust and obey them? Obedience. Second one is pray. He's very specific about how to pray. And then third, discern. Discern. 
right? When you hear people talk about Jesus, discern, are they telling the truth? When they say, I saw the Messiah. He was in my toast this morning. You know, just discern, use discernment. Because we like to read the things on the internet and we like to believe it really quickly. We're pretty gullible. All right, let's not do that. Because not only are we deceived, but then we lead others towards deception too. And there will be Christians who are deceived by the false prophets of our world. That's why he's telling us to watch out and, and discern. Okay? But start with Jesus. Are you right with him? Can you do that? Let's pray. Lord God, as we think about these intense words from Jesus, we need your help in responding to them by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is hard to believe stuff. It is because, partly because we're spiritually dense and we're so caught up in this world that we don't have enough to be able to really see what's true anymore. Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally intercede in our hearts and minds right now to clarify for us right now what's true and believable and right and good, what's in our best interest, what's in the best interest of our neighbor, what's in the best interest of our family and our future. Give us the courage. Give us the humility to recognize our way is not working. It doesn't have a good exit strategy. I don't even know where I'm headed. Lord, help us to humble ourselves and believe that you are the way and the truth and the life, knowing that no one comes to God the Father but through you, by grace through faith. We ask it in Jesus' name.